Welcome to The Director's Take, a podcast where we explore how you go from directing something with your mates to being the most senior decision maker on a film set. I'm Oz Arshad. And I'm Marcus Thomas. And we are both writer-directors at the beginning of our TV and feature film directing journeys. The pathway doesn't exist, so we are going to do our best to help bridge the gap. Welcome and Wagwan. Like most of you, me and Oz are at the point now where we have made countless short films and the next stage for us is figuring out how to get our features made. There's only a few viable institutions to do this with in the UK and we're very lucky to be joined by one of them today. In this chat we're going to be breaking down and demystifying exactly how you go about doing just that. So put your phone on do not disturb, ignore everyone and everything around you, loved ones or otherwise, and enjoy. So welcome back to The Director's Take and today we have a really amazing guest. Amy O'Hara is a seasoned development and production executive who joined Film 4 in October 2021. Her career in the film industry has been marked by a strong commitment to nurturing new and emerging talent. Prior to her current role at Film 4, she held a position of BFI Network Talent Executive at Film Hub North, where she closely collaborated with aspiring writers, directors and producers, overseeing a diverse slate of films. Amy previously worked at Film 4 from 2013 to 2016, serving as assistant to the late Sue Bruce Smith, who was the deputy director at the time. Between her two tenors at Film 4, Amy gained experience at the international distribution company STX, where she served as a marketing executive focused on UK productions. With a track record of championing innovative projects and diverse voices, Amy O'Hara continues to play a pivotal role in shaping the future of UK storytellers at Film 4. Welcome to the director's take, Amy. Welcome. That was nice. I feel very inflated after that. It doesn't sound true <laughs> at all. It is, but thanks. That's, that's wonderful. Thanks for having me on. No worries. Thanks for coming on. It's always good for us to, like, when we give people their flowers, when we introduce them, it's always nice to hear their reaction. Shock. Shock and awe is the reaction. <laughs> we only get good people on, so, you know, we have to uh, give them their flowers. Wonderful. That's why they're on, so they can enlighten us. Yeah. And people forget to do it as well, don't they? I think that's the thing, is, like, you spend so long plugging away and, like, chasing goals, you forget to look back. At like how far you come sometimes you're like oh shit I've absolutely done a lot. yeah what a lovely um, oh we're going to get reflective on this podcast aren't we i can tell i can tell <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> all right so we're going to start right at the beginning with the first question which is and also we do have some listener questions as well which we'll get to later on Great. so can you give us a brief overview amy of what it is you do as a development and production exec i can it is quite wide-ranging so it's not that brief but i shall do i shall do my best um i guess as development and production execs, we're literally involved in sort of every stage of the filmmaking process. So if you are on our slate, for instance, it might be that I, along with the commissioner, and there's always kind of a commissioner and uh, an exec on your project, will work with you right through the development process. So feeding back on um, and kind of shaping treatments and your scripts up until you're kind of you're happy with where you think it's got to and so are we. And then as we move into the production phase of filmmaking, we will be across rushes. So I'll watch the rushes every single day if you're, you know, of your film that's shooting. We often feed back to those if we feel like there's a performance that is maybe not working quite right or there's a kind of uh, a location or a setup that is perhaps not sort of translating as well into the rushes as we thought it might. We try and be quite responsive with that feedback so people could make 
changes as they're shooting, I guess. And then we watch every edit, many, many cuts and a lot of time in post with filmmakers reviewing, talking through, um, shaping the film again in the edit, as, as you'll know, happens. And then we're involved in the grade and the mix and talking about composers and the score. So really it's, it's us along the journey, um, the whole way. And that's kind of my day to day, I suppose. And on top of that proactive talent scouting, trying to find new talent, trying to be across kind of what's happening in the industry and where the gaps are and what the market is responding to. And yeah, looking across different mediums like theater, music video directors, commercials, directors, writers um i'm quite interested in podcasters you know people who are doing work in that space and trying to find stories and storytellers i guess is our kind of um main job alongside supporting the projects on the slate all the way through to release brilliant and um we mentioned in your bio that you have a strong commitment to nurturing new and emerging talent and me being one of them where is it that desire to help comes from and why is that why is that important to you because you it's, it's clear that you've you've always done that funny i really remember our first meeting us it's like burned burned in my brain in a lovely way <laughs> uh in a lovely way but yeah i do remember that um it's you know it's funny i think we could probably go to therapy here if we wanted to but Let's do it. I sort of as a person i think it's ingrained <laughs> in me a little bit like my mom is a nurse and is a real um empath and i think i have that sort of a similar sensibility perhaps like empathy and kind of support and nurture I think is kind of I've always been like that since a little kid sort of probably overly overly caring and quite sensitive actually but sort of transferring that to a professional place I think I actually don't consider myself a creative in a way I sort of consider myself a like creative facilitator like I'm so jealous of of you guys and, and writers and people who have big ideas I don't know if I'm that person but I really love supporting people to um, shape those ideas so I think it's kind of a, an empathetic thing on a kind of um, emotional level and then on a I guess practical level I've worked in a few different places and, and sort of loved all of them in their own way but particularly working um, for STX which was a brilliant I loved the people and it was a very helpful place to be in terms of understanding the more commercial market and kind of a different side of film than the independent sector but, you know, we, we were working on, like, sometimes Mark Wahlberg's 27th action film in the last 18 months mm. or Gerard Butler's 30th action film about the end of the world, all which absolutely have a place and an audience in a cinema. But for me, I did feel a little bit like, well, okay, where are the sort of other storytellers and other people sort of in front of and behind the camera who can change this narrative up a little bit, like, it felt quite stagnant to me. And I just thought, especially as a Northern woman, like you don't hear many voices like ours on screen or stories from people with our sort of voice, literally, but also um, experience. And I'd always just been attracted to the kind of more nuanced, smaller stories. And I think actually doing the bigger stuff was helpful in giving me perspective about what I really wanted to do. And that was to help uh, voices I was interested in kind of make the move to feature wicked awesome i think it would be good to know i think you touched on it earlier is how you find new talent so how do people get on your radar and like how do you keep your finger on the pulse for new talent whereabouts are you looking yes i'm always trying to keep my finger on the pulse it's it's hard in it it's busy at the minute and the job these jobs are um 
of course they're busy. That's a silly thing to say. But sometimes I do find it hard to be as proactive as I would like because you're always being reactive to sort of a big slate. So that is something that I'm always trying to find to balance in and don't always succeed in, to be honest. But we're always across this three development execs at uh, Film 4. Between us, we sort of try and cover most of the UK short film festivals. That's a really big one for us, like Aesthetica and Bolton and Leeds, uh, you know, all the kind of London ones, the Scottish ones. We try and be as kind of regional, as national as we can in getting out to those short film festivals because they're incredibly important for spotting talent. And also we are often sort of voters for Biffa, you know, so we try and see all the submissions that come into Biffa, which is a real joy actually, because it's kind of one place where you can watch hundreds of shorts, which is Mm. brilliant. Um, So short films, theatre is a big one. And because I'm based in Sheffield, I I do work in the London office, but I'm based in Sheffield to try and get out to theatre that isn't just London. I try and cover Manchester and Leeds and Sheffield and kind of Nottingham theatre where I can. Newcastle too. I'm from Newcastle, hence the sort of twang mm. of an accent. But theatre is a big one, particularly for writers. All the obvious places, I hope I'm not sort of saying things that seem uh, obvious, but we're sort of looking at music videos and commercials, really interested in commercials, directors and music video um, directors because they have to think visually like that's the job. They don't have a sort of strict narrative. So often they can be really visually ambitious in a way that if you're sort of bound by a short script, you're more focused on character or, um, you know, a short story arc, which is brilliant. But actually, as directors, it's quite interesting to see what people do um, when the sort of visual comes first, mm. I guess. Obviously, there's a lot of directors about, right? Like, since the pandemic, like, you know, a lot of people have shifted into wanting to be more leaning to their creativity. Um, and you can just see from the funding applications and applications for schemes, like, it's just ballooned. It's massive. Like, I think the BFI recently had over a thousand people applying for the mm. BFI fund. Now, if you're looking for so many directors, like, and there's so much talent, like, how do you manage it, like, between the three of you or just with you? Because you don't, you're not going to have that many slots to be offering uh, funding or development to all of a suite of, you might, like, 50 people that are sick. How does that work? What, 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 what do you do? Yeah, it's hard. And we have to make some really tough decisions, which can which can be brutal for, for, for the filmmakers and, and for us, to be honest. There's loads of stuff that we would love to bring onto the slate. But actually, I think the thing to be really clear about, which is so hard, but there's, it's never one factor about sort of bringing someone onto our slate. Like there's so many things at play that you perhaps as the filmmaker aren't aware of, which is why it's kind of feels even more brutal. But it's a combination of kind of what's on our slate, what we're looking for at that particular moment, what we have lined up, the sort of pipeline to production, I guess, and how these films might fit into the next two years of our kind of production journey, I suppose. And then also because Film 4 in particular don't fully finance anything, it's all it's always about partners. So it's actually like what what are partners looking for? Like, can can we actually build this project? Is there appetite for this? So even if we love something, it might just feel like ultimately there isn't a road to production for it, so we we won't bring it onto the slate. Mm. So in some ways, those kind of questions is the kind of analysis that happens when considering bringing something onto the slate. And also there's just, we, we only can cover so much, I guess, ultimately. We might see three or four shorts at each festival that we really like. We then might meet the filmmaker, follow up directly, which we often do, hear about what their feature idea is, 
does it feel like a good fit for us? Maybe it doesn't, but maybe we'll keep tracking them and they'll make their feature elsewhere and we'll make their second or third film. It's like this constant process of kind of keeping updated, communicating with filmmakers, but not necessarily committing to a project, but sort of trying to be open to the point where they have something that feels right for us and we're ready to um, we're ready to bring it onto the slate, I guess. But you're right, it's tricky. There's there's too much talent and not enough money. That's the yeah. that's the honest answer. So we have to make really tricky decisions. So when you go to like Aesthetica or 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 Bolton or one of these big festivals and you see a piece of work, what is it that you you're kind of looking for in the work which kind of attracts your attention? The ultimate question: What are we looking for? <laughs> and um, I think to be specific now, and it's, I think it's helpful because. This, hopefully this won't date uh, in terms of what I'm mm. saying, but like, we are on a sort of hunt for quite specific stuff at the minute, Film 4, and we can maybe talk about that mm. later. But I think we sometimes try and go with a focus of, okay, we're looking for comedy, so actually I'm going to try and really commit to watching uh, the comedy strands mm. in those festivals because, you know, you have to plan your time accordingly, of course. So maybe it's been really proactive and looking for a comedy that feels cinematic because I actually think that's a tricky thing mm. to do comedy is doing so well in tv and British comedy in a sort of tv space is excellent but it's trickier in film to make it feel like not a sitcom mm. or not kind of it's sort of visually quite flat as comedy because it's all about the joke so how do we find something that might work on the big screen so if someone can do that I think that feels really exciting I like kind of dark weird quite obscure comedy so I'm always interested in something that sort of shocks me and makes me laugh mm. um so some of it's personal taste in terms of like well I like dark comedy so I might gravitate towards that and then some of it is responding to the needs of our slate and gaps we have or material or directors that we're sort of actively looking for and then sometimes you just see something that you get completely blown away by that you didn't expect there's one short actually um I talked about this at a a Bolton, I think we had a filmmaker called Edson Kelman, who's a, a wonderful mm. filmmaker, but he'd he'd made a short called Princess, self-funded. I think it was for about three grand mm. or something. He said, you know, he was working to sort of um, make money to make this short. It was really the first thing he'd ever done, but it was so confident, and it, it wasn't. Com- I mean, it's a it's a drama, absolutely, but it was so stripped back and kind of sparse, and yet so beautiful. And we just thought, gosh, that's such confident filmmaking for the first film you've done. Like, you have filmmaking chops. It just was so clear from that short. Um, so then my colleague David met Edom, loved the feature idea. And what we did with Edom actually is decided to do another short with him because from, you know, £3,000 to a debut feature is a rather large uh, yeah. leak. So we did another short with him that he wanted to do in terms of his own professional development to kind of give him the stepping stone I suppose to his feature so sometimes you don't know what you're gonna get and you just get blown away by something that feels really assured and when you meet Adam that film makes complete sense in terms of his cinematic references and the the things he wants to talk about as a storyteller and that's kind of I guess what we're talking about with voice like you could meet him you see his film and it makes perfect sense mm. I do go off on quite a lot of tangents, by the way. No, it's, it's absolutely fine. It's, it's, it's great. So look, I've got a couple of questions here. So for filmmakers, right, it can get frustrating when talent execs and development execs use words like jump off the page or unique voice or that thing 
to quote the great Lauren Hill. <laughs> you know, w- what does that mean? Because, you know, artists can get into tailspins trying to second guess what the, what execs want or what studios want and this, that and the other. It's two parts, but I'll, I'll let, let's stick with that one first. Yeah, I, I hate it too, voice, you know, and I always like catch myself saying it and then I'm like, but what does it mean? <laughs> For me, it's a little bit like, you know, when if you're talking about a comedian saying it's like, ah, it's the way they tell them. To me, that is voice. Like me and you could say the same joke or tell the same story, but it would be completely different. Mine might be full of highs and lows and might end feeling tragic. And you could tell the same story and it might be a rom-com or it might be happy. I guess it's like, for me, about specificity. I think that's what I mean when I'm talking about voice. It's how does this character feel distinctive to you or this, this story or this world what are you kind of imbuing into the atmosphere of this script that feels distinctive and specific? And sometimes we talk about um, things feeling quite broad. You know, you might hear that. And I think that's when sometimes it's trying to please everyone and ends up sort of pleasing no one. And for me, voice is just really digging into the specifics of your life experience, the stories you want to tell and finding a way to make it feel y- unique. But that could be like, we're both writing a character called Jack who rides to work at nine o'clock every day and puts his bike on the train. But my Jack and your Jack are going to be very different, right? I guess that I'm just trying to sort of make it feel simple when it's not. And I hope well, that's not um, patronizing, but I suppose it's why is your Jack different and more interesting than the Jack that I'm trying to write? Mm. I think there, there might not be an answer to this particular thing, but I'm sure that some of our listeners are probably thinking this. And, and, we, and we did ask Ben Taylor when he came on, the same question was about, is it subjective though to the individual's taste that's making that decision? That's a great question. I think you, I mean, always probably to a percent, yes. I suppose that you, you can't, as much as we do all our unconscious bias training, we try and um, remain open and sort of open-minded to these things. I guess there's always a part of that, but actually you do have to remember that we read thousands of scripts a year and like the people in these jobs are experienced, you know, there's a there's a reason that they're in these jobs. That's not just sort of, I sound big-headed now, which I, do, I don't mean that, but like we read so mm. much, we read so much and we meet so many filmmakers and you do, you do start to understand the difference. So it's not just me thinking, well, this isn't dark comedy and I only like dark comedy. So of course that's not the case. You start to understand when things really shine and when things don't purely by experience. You know, we've worked on, I've worked on shorts and features. Everyone in my team has had years and years of doing this and having these conversations and meeting and developing filmmakers to a really high standard so I do think there's a kind of level of um, experience that comes where you are able to push aside any taste things like I work on stuff that I get quite scared by horror but I work on horror you know it doesn't mean that I have to like it to see its quality so I guess what to a percent yes just because we're humans but we're sort of um, able to be objective enough to realize when something is quality and that's when we sort of move forward. And always there's there's many, many eyes on these projects too. It's never just one person or certainly not in our organization. And that wasn't the case at BFI. There's always multiple people looking at these projects. So that does also kind of eliminate the taste question to an extent. Cool. So just, just the other part of that question was, yeah. if there's a filmmaker who wants to make a show, should they be doing something that's, that, that could be developed into a long form like a, like a proof of concept or whatever, or should they just no. do whatever's gonna, whatever's in front of them? That's gonna be the best piece of work. 
a really good question. I think both both can be true. I think you could be really strategic about your journey to feature, I guess. Actually, I talked to Nick Rowland about this once. You know, um, Nick Rowland, yeah. who did Karmath Horses as his debut. And he, he said, actually, and I hope I'm not uh, misquoting him here, but that he was quite strategic about his shorts. So he knew he wanted to do something with like a, I think a car chase or kind of something quite action-led. So then he did a short that was about a, a rally driver. And also he's kind of interested in that. And he also wanted to explore sort of toxic masculinity. So did another short that was kind of framed around that. So essentially, I think he did four shorts that sort of, while existing in their own right, gave him a tool that allowed him to tell the story in his feature or use those kind of storytelling devices in his feature. And I guess what that does is for funders, they say, oh, well, he, he can do a car, Jace. We've sort of seen that. Or he can do um, drama. He can do action. We sort of give confidence to the financier. Mm. So that's one way to do it. And that's an interesting route if you can do that, which not everyone can, of course. I also think if you're really um, like a genre nerd, like if you want to make horror and that's the sort of space you want to be in, yes, you probably should be making horror or similarly comedy because that's tricky. And if you have a great story and you think you can, you have a real strong vision for it and it sort of exists in its own right and you just love the story and it's something you have to tell, you should absolutely do that because I think you can feel those on screen. I think you can feel that passion on screen. So We've worked with people who we love the short, are really excited about a feature idea, but it might be tonally completely different to something they've done before. And that, it's a risk. It is a risk. But I think as with Edom, you sort of see the filmmaking chops and you understand that they can deliver and have an eye and we'll work with them to get to the point where they can deliver that story. Mm. I think proof of concept shorts are a bit tricky. Like Brian and Charles is a good example. That's a film for... Um, Film for film, there. One of my favourite films of recent times. Oh, yeah, oh, it's, great. Nice, yeah. it's a brilliant film. Oh, <laughs> really, really good. Did you both see the short? Yeah. Had you seen yeah. the short? Yeah. I went to the the previous screening with the Q and A and had Charles there as well. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely bonkers. Um, oh, great. Well, that like that's a really good example of something that I think they made that short for five hundred quid. It was basically the cost of the Airbnb in Wales and Charles's box you know yeah, was yeah. all yeah. they paid for um and they always had ambition to make that into a feature and i actually think they're developing that world even further in other spaces um but just just on that right on that amy right yeah. you just said that they made that for 500 quid for the airbnb and they got the box and this is a conversation i'm having quite a lot marcus we spoke on the on the tube home last night about this this idea that because funding is squeezed now so much and filmmakers need to make films to show they can actually make films, do you think that that is it? That actually budget doesn't equate to quality necessarily and people just need to be innovative to get through this stage of, I need to show people the work, I just need to be smart in how I do it to show that, to get through. Because, you know, if people sit around waiting for funding, it's going to be years in between films. So Yeah, it's a tricky conundrum that, isn't it? And I, I sort of feel like, the world is not in a great place, if we're being honest, and it's it's things are tricky. I think that your point about does sort of production budget equate to quality? No, it does not. Like not off, not always. You know, I think obviously that it's really hard to compete with the budgets coming out of some film schools that they're they're given, and you know, higher budget funding schemes. Of course, if you don't have any money and you're trying to compete with the sort of production value of that, it must be really disheartening. But actually, 
if you look at some of the more interesting sort of films that are coming out at the minute, like Talk to Me, I went to see that last night. Great. That's like two, U- two YouTube guys. Yeah. And they've just sort of cultivated a thing by making stuff on YouTube mm. and then being given, being given more budget to play with. I don't always think you can see the value on screen if if you haven't got the skill to sort of deliver it. I think if you can make stuff and to me, like make me scared in five minutes, I create an atmosphere with no money. That's really impressive and will probably catch my eye. Mm. I'm not just looking at sort of, oh, you've got a tank and a dog and there's like, you know, a brilliant cinematographer, which makes it look beautiful, but actually performances are sort of let it down or your blocking has been, you know, very straightforward. There's all these things that you sort of money will not help with, mm. actually. And you can show some of those flourishes with no budget. I'm sort of loath to be like, just go out and make stuff. You don't need any money. Like, I, that's really frustrating. I do understand that because you're competing with people. You are getting funded and that feels hard. So there has but to I be... I think an... you have to just... No, go ahead. I'll no, no I was going to say that. So, so yes, obviously showing, you know, doing something for hardly anything, but obviously there has to be um, a certain level of application of craft in order to pull that off to you know for someone to look at it and think right this person and you know i'm gonna we're gonna quote him again on the podcast and i'm sure he's gonna buzz when he hears his word, his name again but liam white did punch drunk which was long, long listed yeah. for a bafta we'll just bleep and, his name out by the way because he's yeah, we'll getting bleep. too much free publicity yeah, yeah. he does um <laughs> and and i know there's loads of other filmmakers that have done similar thing but i've just i've just helped out on his shot which is why he's at the front of my mind okay. and um he did that for 162 quid and it was long listed for the BAFTA. Now some of them might think, yeah, but da, da, da. no, he just thought, what's in what what do I have as as the resources that I've got in front of me? What can I make that's compelling? I'm not gonna do a load of and coverage. It's, it's set in France as well, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's set in France. Uh, <laughs> yeah. AKA a cafe with people speaking French. It's I, I mean, yeah. Liam is again now giving him free publicity, but he is the king of kind of making something out of very little like he's a very resourceful person mm. and is always just grafted and always in fact not being able to not make something is always the impression i got from liam he just has to keep making things and punch drunk's absolutely brilliant it's the the quintessential two people talking in a room short but the the tone of that film is so specific and so it's dripping with unease yeah, isn't yeah. it the writing's um it's a story the writing's yeah. great and the performances are great, and he's done that on very little. In fact, I I showed that to my team as a brilliant example of like he's made this for nothing, and it was long listed as you said for a BAFTA. So it can be done, but I I do understand that it's sort of easier said than done. Also, and don't want to be like just make it on your phone, you'll break through easily. No, because it's not as simple as that. Yeah, not as simple as that. But I think if you just you're always learning when you do that. Exactly. Never, even if it doesn't get into festivals like you will learn something about the way you speak to actors or actually the way natural daylight works that you didn't know before these little things will all just accumulate into your like your wider toolkit and that's so valuable that's really it because once you do get the money then you've got these like that learning doesn't go anywhere so like it's not a waste of time just because it's not validated by an institution like absolutely it's it's yeah it's it's just a mental battle and you said about the slate and the criteria you have at Film 4. So what do you look for when selecting projects and talent to develop? Um, are there specific genres or themes you're specifically looking at? And how does the slate dictate your choices as well? Yeah, I mean, at the minute, I think we're really, we'd love to find 
more British horror and more British comedy. I think they're two things that sort of we're actively looking for. And also also um, work that sort of connects to a younger audience. I think historically Film 4 has probably been known for being like sort of quite dark drama driven. That's probably been our bread and butter and we'll continue to do that. Absolutely. But we'd love to find more comedy and more horror. Obviously we have Rose Glass's next project. We did St. Maud. Her next project is not horror, actually. It's It still has some of her kind of visceral grossness and shocking moments, but it's it's much more of a thriller and it's, you know, set in America and it has a whole different feel to anything we've seen from her before, I think. So you don't have to be stuck in that space at all. You know, you can make a horror and then go on to make something completely different. We, we don't want to push people in boxes, but I think that's kind of responding to the market also and the needs of our channel because we're not the same as BF5 BBC we're privately funded and publicly owned so it's slightly different and we do work with a slightly more commercial um remit than those other two bodies mm. so there is a response in terms of kind of horror and comedy do well you know and can often be sort of lower budget with a bigger return but also it's exciting i think you know what what's the kind of british comedy voices we used to be so good at that on the big screen and there hasn't really been a breakout British comedy hit for... Probably since Between Us, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's loads of brilliant people doing that in the TV space because mm. it's a natural... Mm. I guess from like stand-up or skit writing to sketches to sort of sitcom feels a really natural uh, route. But how do we sort of get those stories onto the big screen? I think that feels an exciting challenge for the next couple of years for films. Is it one of those as well, though? Like, if, if I was to do, like... An- a 90 minute comedy script and send it in someone would look at it and be like could you turn this into six episodes instead <laughs> <laughs> well yes i imagine uh if you if you were to go to a uh, a streamer perhaps that would be the case i mean film four we are obviously embedded within channel four and part of channel four but we do operate fairly autonomously so i mean if it feels better suited to tv because it's a big ensemble and you're kind of not exploring one arc then perhaps we'd say this feels tv mm. but we, we we don't want you to turn it into six parts we want to make it into a feature film where feature film till we die i love that so when people do submit projects to you does it need to come for a production company for an agent or does it can you do it unsolicited what does that process look like and is it best to submit treatments or scripts you can submit unsolicited material to uh we have an inbox called film or submissions at channel4.co.uk, which I'm, that's fine to sort of be in the world. And that does get checked. We have um, our development coordinator looks at that every day and then we'll divvy out those projects. But really we need a producer or an agent attached to the project um, for us to sort of be sent directly to one of the development team. Now, having said that, like if we see a short at a film festival or we see something online or like there's a talent that we think is really interesting, we can reach out to them have a general kind of understand what projects they have, where they're at. And if we really love the idea and they don't have a producer attached, we can do some sort of matchmaking and try and help them along on that process to have a producer come on board. But generally, it's much easier to have a producer attached from earlier for us because slightly different to BFI, but in terms of kind of paperwork and the actual green light processes, you know, you, you really need a producer who can understand the kind of legal side of it, I think, mm. and, and be your champion um, there. We accept things from like outline onwards, really. An outline meaning like, so like a one page document or? 
of just what the story yeah, and, is and what happens. I'm nodding on a podcast, yeah. which is not very helpful, is it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I was just going to ask just in terms of that producer question, because it was something that, um, you know, blew up on the internet about producers and BFI. So you said that, you you, you know, you'd, you'd, need, you'd need producers, obviously, to dot the I's and cross the T's with the legal stuff and whatever else they're going to do. What what does their repertoire have to look like in order for them to be a viable producer that you're going to, you know, take on and take seriously? Yeah. And also just, uh, I'm not reducing a producer's job to um, the paperwork. I guess what I mean there is you having your champion all the way through the project, both sort of logistically, creatively, and from a sort of business affairs point of view, because the producer is the person that we sort of liaise with most you know our production team our business affairs team they all go through the producer so that's why it's we like having them on board early in terms of their sort of creative track record and what they've done before you will as you will need to produce shorts certainly as a producer ideally something with a sort of a reasonable budget but i think if you as a producer have done um network shorts or music videos or commercials then we can absolutely um, entertain that. And often what we have been doing on our debuts actually is if a producer hasn't made a feature before but has done shorts or maybe TV even, uh, we attach an exec producer and you know put a line in the budget for an exec who can support that producer because like, as you know and people listening know, it's, it's really, really hard to be a producer. Mm. Incredibly tough job to be financially kind of stable and not come from money makes it very difficult. So we're really keen to sort of be supporting producers coming up. So we'd rather not say, no, you can't do it because you haven't made a feature. We try and build a kind of system of support with an exec and our production team and our business affairs team to kind of help that producer um, make the move to feature, I guess. Do you largely work with writer directors as well? Or is it writers and director teams? Or do you sometimes be like, we like this talent and we've got this script, could we put these guys together? Does that ever happen at all? All of the above. Honestly, like, I'm so nervous about saying one thing because <laughs> every single project is different and there's so many different jigsaw pieces of the way these projects come together, the way teams are built. We work with writer-directors, purely writer-directors, who might have done, let, let's say they did three brilliant shorts, they have an idea for a feature we love, they have a one-page outline, it's, it's sort of totally similar to something they've done before. So we feel quite confident that they're going to kind of be able to handle it at longer at longer scale. And we would commission maybe two two or three drafts with some revisions and work really closely with them to take it from outline to draft and then second draft and et cetera. Sometimes we, particularly if someone's coming from a commercial space or music video, it's, they're just the director that we love. And then we might try and pair them with a writer or they might they might have writers they want to work with for an idea we do actually do quite a lot of sort of matchmaking and try and set people up who feel like-minded or want to make similar work so we do that sometimes a writer director will do two drafts and then we'll bring on a co-writer or like a script editor because you know they need someone who can help the structure or just needs to kind of finesse theme and they can't quite get there like mm. the there's so many different versions of how these projects develop and I guess we try and respond to the needs of the story and how best to tell the story it's never us forcing forcing you know like oh you need to have a co-writer now it's always a conversation about like how do you feel this is going 
do you need some support? Is that a page turn with a script editor? Or is that actually bringing in another voice who can help you get there? Um, so yeah, we try and be quite reactive in development in terms of the needs of the, the story, I suppose. Mm. Cool. Does it does it help if they've got a cast attached to it? Does that does that like propel it forward? It sort of depends what point we're talking about. Like, I guess if you if it's a day, I suppose let's talk about debuts. That's easiest, isn't it? That's probably the most relevant mm. because it's it works slightly differently. Second, third, fourth feature. But for debuts, not necessarily. I mean, often we like to come on board quite early if possible. Like we love being part of the development and that's kind of our bread and butter. And hopefully people really benefit from that process with us, I hope. Touching wood somewhere in my house. So no, I mean, you wouldn't really expect cast to be attached at that point. And actually we're a huge part of that process. Like we watch casting tapes with you, you know, with the, with the filmmakers and the producer and sort of feed into that decision-making quite often on debuts. If you've developed a brilliant relationship with someone in the shorts world and you, you know, you want that actor to be in your film, that that's absolutely a conversation. And if you can get a star attached, great. But actually the debut space, that's less important, especially if the model is kind of us, BFI, a Screen Yorkshire, for instance, a cast doesn't matter so much. Do you know, yeah, I, I remember when I was speaking to you before um, in the past and we were talking about this idea of about mitigating risk for a director. I wanted to get your thoughts on if there's a director that's gone on and done a bit of TV and then they come to you and they've got a project that you really like, um, maybe they come with a treatment, which we need to ask about as a later question about treatments. Does that does that help in con- getting it over the line because they've got more experience that they're not going to screw the money up in terms of the actual execution of the production or if they've just come up through shorts i'm thinking about um the wonderful jack gill who i know that you develop him with you know he's come up through shorts so he's coming from shorts and then he's going to hopefully do straight do his debut feature whereas there might be someone else who's done some episodes of tv is there a difference to how you approach those two types of filmmakers good really good question i definitely think um working in tv is a plus like i think i sort of feel like any experience on set as a director is beneficial regardless of kind of what that is and i think especially if you're working in more high-end tv i mean the, the the line is quite blurred it really it's become much more blurred in the last few years in terms of how cinematic some of that high-end tv is i mean we like we all watched um i mean the last of us was brilliant oh. anyway but you know the really beautiful standalone episode yeah, episode three um yeah yeah episode three that you know that director i think we started we like reached out actively peter hall peter hall yes like it's a sin as well yeah exactly and you know we were like wow that was such a beautiful episode of television Uh, you know does peter want to work in features or has he got feature ideas and kind of approach approach people like that because they have it's the same experience it's incredibly cinematic storytelling Mm. so i think if you can get work in tv you're working with actors. As far as I can see, you're working with crew and you're working with actors. Like that can only benefit you when you get to your debut feature. And like with Jack, for instance, I mean, his shorts are really cinematic anyway. So you, it's again, it's the kind of have they got filmmaker chops is the is the question. We wouldn't treat them differently though. I mean, they would, unless a filmmaker says to us, I actually would like to test this thing out that I want to do in my feature and I haven't done before because I didn't have the budget in my short etc we might then use some of the development budget to let them do a test shoot or sort of research or try something out that they needed to 
we wouldn't kind of approach the development process hugely differently depending on where someone's come from. I guess there's just a question of scale. So if someone's mm. directed an episode of The Last of Us or hired TV, they might have worked with a three million, four million pound budget, which is very different to working with a 25 grand or 15 grand budgets. So there might be a question of like, how big is this idea? Does it feel like a debut? Actually, is this more of a second feature and you need to do something a bit smaller as your debut that's, to kick off. That's really interesting. Can you elaborate on that, please? What 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 does feel like a debut? What is what should a debut be? Well, that be oh, that is a killer question. What should a debut be? Oh, you said all right, you, think, you said feel like a debut. So what's the feeling then? I think it should feel. Oh, that's a great question. I think if someone came to us and had done three shorts that had largely been up to say 60 grand maybe they'd had something funded up to about 60 grand and then they came to us with an idea that was really international involved different countries different locations and like and you know a big cast that feels like a really big leap from working with a really small crew in kind of quite a contained location mm. so i think it's more it's not necessarily about the the sort of feel or the storytelling necessarily but i do think it's about scale like if this bear in mind Film four debuts largely, although this does vary sometimes. There's always caveats to the rule. Used to be about 1.5 million. Now is edging up to sort of three to four, I'd say, because of like COVID has had an impact. Uh, mm-hmm. Streamers on crew have had it. You know all these things that I'm sure you guys sort of talk about. But for us, like if you're if 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 your budget is above four, you're just going to struggle to get that made if you don't have a track record under your belt um, unless you've proven I mean there's again horror is great for that that's why the Philippu brothers you know they've done their YouTube thing and I'm not sure what Talk To Me was shot for but it was probably more than two million um, Just to summarise you were saying when you were talking about the feel of a, a debut you mean feel in terms of scale and the production the size of the production not necessarily the feel of the creativity in it Yes. Yeah, exactly. I think it, you know, I don't want to say manageable, but I guess it has to, you know, you want it to be ambitious, of course, in its storytelling. But I just think you have to be mindful that in the UK industry, there is only really, unfortunately, sort of X number of routes to get your debut financed. So if you you need to look at something that really is going to be three million or less. So what does that look like? You know, that's still that you can still be incredibly ambitious, but you both have worked on like big TV shows where that's half an episode of mm. something, you know? So like, yeah. actually you do have to just keep scale in mind a little bit. And if the idea is bigger, park it, keep it, write it, have it bubbling under, continue to develop it. But maybe that's a second feature once you can um, confidently command, you know, a budget upwards of 3 million, I guess. Mm. I think that's that's an important note is, it's why we say about momentum is like if you get rejected with something then it's like it's not work that's wasted it's something you can reference later on once you get a yes for something one of the first questions is once you've made that is like well what else have you got and you're like oh there's this thing which i really like which no one wants to make do you want to see this and then maybe that's the thing and the time where that will get elevated yeah so say we've just submitted some work you love it you think it's probably the best thing you've ever seen you've ever read you throw a bunch of money at us, you're now rich. We've got a feature in development with Film 4. What happens next? Do we shoot next year? What What are the next steps? 
you're now rich, so you you sack us off and move to LA and we lose you to the US industry. No. Um, so, so Amy, Amy, when you go through this, could you really break it down as well? Like, how does the? I don't want to know numbers of payments, but how does the payment work? When do you get paid? Do you get paid this and then it's this stage? I know a little bit about it because Jack told me a little bit about it, but it'd be great to get our audience yeah. to really understand this. Yeah. So let's sort of. I'll try and um, mark it. Somebody just use you and uh, talk it through as if you were the. So I seen your short at a film festival and i love it it's let's say it's a horror just because we've been talking about that quite a lot i email you and you have a producer who has done two or three shorts with you and also has has made other shorts has a pretty strong track record i meet you and we talk about some feature ideas you pitch me one that i think is really exciting and you're really passionate about it being your debut and the kind of the mark you want to make in the industry as your first film because i think that's important to think mm. about is the sort of mm. you know the stake in your the ground as a filmmaker you want to make with that debut that's you know your launching pad you don't have to be stuck to that theme or that world or that type of filmmaking forever but it's what people are going to talk about so you know you should you should feel incredibly passionate about that and what you want to say about the world as a filmmaker we decide you you show us a one-page outline that we'd love say so, great we go and talk to our team so we always sort of pitch uh, to the wider team let them know about the project so we can kind of be aware of what else is on the slate. Just check there's no kind of overlaps that are um, going to be a problem. And then we officially commission the project. What that normally looks like is probably a couple of drafts and a couple of sets of revisions. There might be cutoffs within that, which mean that after you've done a draft and a set of revisions, and actually you think, I'm going to take this in a really different direction. I don't want to do it like this anymore. And we say, oh, well, that's kind of not the film we thought you were making. And we actually have something that's quite similar to that. We can kind of part ways. Amicably, you can take your project with you and we'll put it into turnaround. But hopefully, we all love where it's at. You'll do another draft, another set of revisions. And the payment happens. There's like a breakdown. So I think it's on delivery of each each draft, basically. Um, there's a sort of upfront, upfront payment that happens. And then on draft, a commencement fee basically mm. and then as you deliver that's sort of how the payment breaks down and then say we've got through that kind of um essentially four kind of drafts it's, it's some sometimes it's revision sometimes there's a polish to that we'll all discuss it see if we feel like it's ready to share with the wider team we don't do a team read in the same way that bfi do but we do we do at one point share um share the project more widely and get feedback from the whole team because one thing that's so important to say is like fresh eyes are crucial because even in the development process, as much as you try and take yourself out of a story, once you've read it five times, even as development execs, of course you see things differently and you kind of have your head in it in a way that new people won't. So we try and get another round of feedback from kind of the widest team who've all fed into the project. And I just, to differentiate, there is a difference between being in development with film for and a production conversation. Like we develop a lot of stuff, not all of it get, gets made. We always bring it onto the slate in the hope that it will get produced. Of course we do. It's not kind of speculative ever, but we only make X amount of films a year. So we'll talk about that in a minute, about kind of the, the production um, timeline, I guess. But hopefully everyone in the team loves it. We do a polished draft where some of that feedback gets incorporated. And then we kind of bring in our... Um, distribution and brand strategy team who will then talk to you about uh, partners 
sales agents? How are we going to find the rest of the finance for this film? Is it a low budget independent debut? So do you need to apply to BFI? Actually, you've met A24. Once you start having sort of these, um, once you have something in development, obviously doors open, which is both good and and annoying if you don't. But, mm. you know, other other partners you're interested in that we can set you up with and you, you start to try and build a finance plan, basically. And our team will help you help you do that. It's and then after it's, draft four, typically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. sometimes it's draft 10. Sometimes it's draft two, you know. When it's quite ready to understand what you're going to be making yeah. loosely. Yeah. Exactly. When it feels like it's a really indicative version of what the film will be, new partners will have notes always. I mean, every time you bring someone new to the project, you'll probably need to mm. expect feedback. And it can be doing that until two days before you're about to shoot. You know, you, you can still be tweaking. Not always, but you just always have to be kind of open to that that process, I think. You don't always have to agree with the notes, of course. That's also a conversation to be had. But every time a new partner comes aboard, they'll probably have thoughts. And then you mm. kind of build the the finance plan, and hopefully, once that's in place, then you shoot, go and shoot, shoot your debut. Timeline wise, I would say roughly probably two to three years. If you're submitting from outline of treatment, like if you've already submitted something that's um a draft, quite a developed draft, that might be a quicker process. But if it's just kind of the general development process, is probably two to three years. Uh, for a debut. Sounds really simple. It sounds so simple. (laughs) (laughs) It is. And then it's also the most complicated thing in the world. I know. Yeah. So what are the things which, throughout that development process, what are the things which typically go awry? If you can like shed some light on that, what are the sort of mistakes people make? Because I think a lot of early filmmakers especially can be quite guarded. Most of the time it comes from insecurity, but I think notes especially can be quite painful for people so yeah i'd be keen to to hear about the mistakes people make and i i, I totally also it's so vulnerable like you're putting something you know you're sharing something in the world that i understand uh the guardedness completely and also sometimes it's like well who are you to who are you to say that about my project but again you sort of have to rely on the experience of the team i think and always know that obviously going to say brilliant things about film four but there's such a passionate and compassionate team like all they want is to make great work and support Mm. like the vision of filmmakers and that sounds like a platitude and it sounds like a sort of fridge magnet but it is honestly true like we buzz off it it is the joy like we love it and all we're trying to do is essentially extract the best version of your your film and that's what Mm. the notes are always pushing towards i think and i think one thing we always try and do is sort of check in our intention like let's always have that conversation about what what is your intention here because actually we're mm. not quite we're not quite getting that or that's not coming across and it's always trying to sort of come back to come back to that i think some of the pitfalls sometimes i think people have quite a rigid idea of what they think is they think is translating and it just isn't and it can be really hard to kill your darlings and actually there, there could be scenes or characters or threads that are just weighing down the film and and sometimes you just need to lose it and it kind of opens up, like can free you. Mm. But to do that could feel incredibly difficult because you've invested a whole lot of time developing this this part of the project. And that's sometimes in a script editor, we might bring them on just as a fresh pair of eyes to kind of really dig into the intention of that particular thing. And if it's not working, often losing it just frees you in a way that 
you know, when you say like break open the script, sometimes that you have like a real breakthrough and it, it becomes a whole other thing with a really small edit, really. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people, and that this can be awful, just interpret the notes differently or, you know, in a way that we perhaps didn't um, intend and it can send people on a bit of a cul-de-sac kind of path. And I'm sure you've been through that process. That's when it's tricky when you're okay. Like you almost need to go back a draft. And we've done that before. Like this draft previous was actually working better. You've kind of taken a a U-turn. That's fine. You still learn stuff. Again, you always find clarity even in the wrong stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But that can be tricky because then you're like, oh, I've just done all that work. And actually the the draft before, you just needed to do X, Y, or Z. And you'll be kind of, that character will shine or it will feel really emotional at the end whereas at the minute it's landing a bit flat like mm. sometimes it's um mm. about finessing rather than big sweeping stuff and i think that how people respond to notes you always have to have a conversation like we do written notes but we always have a conversation first and then follow up yeah. with written notes um because you need to talk it through and you need to hear what the filmmaker means and what their intention is and then we interpret that and kind of use that in our notes but Discussion is like key, obviously. I mean, everything sounds brutal when it's written down. Because oh, <laughs> it's it's like the yeah. worst voice in your head being like, you might just be like, can you tweak this moment? It was like to read it and in your head, it's like, tweak this moment. And you're like, oh no. <laughs> like, tweak this moment, but this is like, you know, it's a childhood thing that happened to me. I can't tweak it. And you're like, I know, but it's not working for the, the story. Um, and often our notes tend to be, in terms of how we deliver them, Often we'll ask some bigger questions, depending on where we are in the development process, but often there'll be a kind of section where we're asking some of the bigger, broader questions, which I know can feel feel a bit fluffy sometimes, mm. and even I'm aware of that when you write them. But actually, I guess all, all we want to do is get you thinking sort of bigger picture about theme and things that perhaps aren't just, just aren't landing yet, and how might you kind of think about the overarching um, thing you want to say. And then we'll often go into really specific stuff like page, you know, page notes. What do you mean here? This doesn't sound like that's in that character's voice. So it's kind of a big picture thinking and then um, really specific digging into page notes. And that's normally how we mm. deliver stuff. So, Amy, just to kind of like unpack, not necessarily your approach, but balancing the artistic integrity with the commercial need with the audience, right? Because yeah. you... You're choosing a project, right? And obviously marketing has to come into it later on once it's done and it has to be promoted. How much of the sort of like commercial landscape governs your choice when picking a project? But then, you know, this might be like, I really like this project. It's it's really, really good. Well, like, how do you how do you balance that? Because we live in an era now where, like, especially in TV, shit gets kiboshed and then reshot. Like, like films just being shot and then taken off the shelf because it's like, oh, it will right off as a tax thing that's people's that's people's livelihoods and people's that's their creation their babies how do you balance yeah. that i think we um very different model to tv of course and i know that i mean some really brutal stuff around that i agree it's it's some terrifying but for us there's the slate is is made up of different parts and as i said we do have a more commercial um remit than some of the other um big funders but we're, we're very talent driven like, yes, we have to um, analyze the commercial prospect of something, for, especially for certain parts of our slate. We're often quite a small cog in a big machine. You know, there's often three or four other bigger financing partners. We've likely developed the project or kind of 
been with a filmmaker for a long time and maybe made their day being second, third. And suddenly our money needs to work differently in these bigger projects so that we do have to kind of um, analyze the kind of commercial prospect of that. But it's not in necessarily the way you think in terms of like, is this going to, you know, we're not trying to make Barbie every time. It's about just where, how our money works with the partners. So it's kind of a really complex conversation because some partners take some rights and some partners' money has to come somewhere in the financial waterfall. It's all these very, it's like the minutiae of the deal, basically, that we have to consider rather than like, you need to cast Brad Pitt and it needs to be mm. 90 minutes long, no longer. We're not thinking about it in those terms. Generally, it's filmmakers and stories we love. And then we have to consider kind of what the bigger deal is and how film falls mm. money works within that. So, um, so, so you don't necessarily measure the success of a film by a box office return because obviously over the years, you know, I, I study different filmmakers and their and their uh, projects and how they've done it. For example, Jonathan Glazer, you know, he might have done a film that didn't that that didn't. You know, loads of filmmakers, especially indie ones, they don't make the money back as it says it on, on on Wikipedia in terms of the box office yeah. and all of that stuff. So is the success of a film measured just by the box office or not? No. no I mean, for, for different, um, probably for the, the filmmaker may feel that or not, you know, potentially, but you, you should get a business affairs person to talk this through because it's incredibly interesting, quite knotty and complex, but it sort of depends like how, where your money is in the film. And, and how, because some people get their money back straight away. Like as soon as the film makes any money, there's a waterfall and certain people get certain money first and there's kind of a trickle down effect. So actually if you, the film does two weeks, say it does two weeks in the cinema and then goes on to a streaming platform or somebody picks it up for a platform or through VOD, like you might eventually make your money back or you might make your money back really quickly, even if it hasn't done well at the box office because the film's pre-sold in all territories before it's even been released. So it's not just box office. I mean, especially at the minute, box office is tricky, but we, you can still make your money or a film can still be considered a success even if it hasn't made a smash hit. It just depends on the, the financial modeling, which is quite dry, actually. So even though it's even though you're very much talent-driven, it still yeah. does matter on that bottom line being in green and not red, regardless of where the book comes from. For for some part of our slate, right? Okay. Um, and that's also doesn't always it doesn't always happen. But that's the ambition is to try and make some stuff make a return. But then for our day de- for our debuts, that isn't the case. That is um, right. That's soft money, and that's where we can take a risk. And that's you know where we're working with new filmmakers, and it doesn't have to. Um, that's where we're nurturing talent and supporting people without the huge pressure of needing to make a return. Mm. So that's hopefully good, you know, because this is where people will be aiming for is that kind of the debut portion of our slate. But yeah, the money works a bit differently for that. Awesome. That's where you should take risk. And that's where sometimes that is where like BBC, that is purely their remit because it's all public funding. So they, they should be taking those risks and don't need a return in the same way that we sometimes do on bigger projects. But that's fascinating. Yeah, just, it's fascinating. I think, Marcus, I think we should look at that getting a business affairs person on. You know, as a filmmaker, mm. the pressure of my money's got, my, my film's got to turn a profit. Well, not necessarily if it's a debut, you know, it's, it's, it's also yeah. about you and, and what impact it can have and all that stuff. But yeah, we'll have a look into that. Um, and the last question from And sometimes, you know, oh, no, sorry. She waffles, she waffles no, again. No, go, go. Um, no. Sometimes you, we will come on board a project with the hope, like for film four, and, and I hope that's evident in 
our back catalog but like just in terms of the nurturing angle like we might take a risk on someone's debut because we want to be in the game of that filmmaker like Steve McQueen or you know Jonathan Glazer or these people where we were doing shorts of theirs you know and have been involved in every film since and we took a risk on the debut built a relationship which is what this business is really is finding people you like working with and who you feel supported by and sticking with them and then as their films got bigger and bigger I can testify to that because I've known you for four years now you know I can testify to that completely (laughs) and we're stuck and I'm still here and you're still there that's good you know sometimes you take a risk because you want to be in the game of that filmmaker and make their second feature and third feature and you just trust them as an artist and you do have to take a risk to get to that point so that's what the film for game absolutely is yeah that's just a sort of statement of intent i think our last mm. question um marcus was just about treatments like you know we spoke about development before and about those drafts obviously some people might have a might have might just have an idea you said before that you know sometimes it can just be an outline it could just be a treatment what is it is it is it is it treatments one pages what kind of thing is gonna kind of spark your interest and what should filmmakers if they're gonna have a general review or whatever come to the table with again everyone's different but I think a a really solid one page for me is great. I think it's like if you can sort of, you know, three paragraphs where I understand the journey of your film and like a pitch deck, to me that feels a really useful, again, statement of intent in terms of like, this is the film I want to make. Of course, it doesn't have to be fully fleshed out. That takes months and months and years and years of work and hopefully we can go on that journey together. I think if it feels very different to anything you've done before that's when it's slightly trickier like if you've made three three shorts that kind of deal in a similar tone or a similar world and your kind of feature is building upon that that's a really clear journey and you can kind of as as um execs we can look back and think yeah i see that i see how this makes sense and i can see their voice and i can see how they're gonna scale up and elevate this into feature here's the story idea great if you've made kitchen sink dramas in your shorts but then you want to make a comedy horror that feels really elevated a genre for your feature then there's a bit of work to do to kind of help us understand that that gap and I think that's where a more fleshed out treatment and kind of a maybe some visuals maybe even some kind of little videos that you've made yourself about things you want to experiment with can help us um make that it's when it feels quite different to all work you've done before that you probably need to flesh things out before coming to us if it feels like a very natural progression from what you've been doing, then as you can see, like it's an easier sell, I guess. Wonderful. Yeah. And the BFI, I don't know if either of you have been through the BFI network treatment process at all. No. No. Uh, I think that they do, maybe it's up to five or 10 pages theirs, but I think like a five pages is, is wonderful. If you can do it in five pages, that's really helpful. And then some visuals to go alongside it. That's what I... That's what I like Mm. to receive anyway. I mean, we could do a whole episode on that. So I think it'd be good to dig into some listeners' questions so we can can fly through these. So pitching is a whole thing. Can you give examples of things which are included in a good pitch, things that you don't like to see in a pitch, and how often do you get pitched to? To be honest, we don't really get pitched to. It's not like the elevator pitch. It's not like you come in and you have 10 minutes with us. Because something either needs to come through, like generally a producer and agent, as we've talked about, or it's something that we've seen that we're proactively um, sort of meeting someone on. We're not really expecting you to come and give us like your spiel. To be honest, it's the generals for me and I think the team are about understanding you 
as a person and as a filmmaker and the sorts of stories you want to tell. And then when it comes to talking about your idea, or I want to feel like your passion and a sort of a brief summary of the idea, you don't need to give me like a log line. Sometimes people just talk at you and I completely understand that because that's kind of the the industry standard is like, here's my two thing and then you're going to buy it off this, this two second kind of thing, which feels mad because we're going to go on a journey that's potentially three years long together. Mm. So general meetings, I think, are about getting to know someone. I love to know their tastes. I love to know what they've seen recently that they're inspired by in terms of like British cinema. And then I think with your idea, it's like, Having, having a two minute kind of, well, here, here's roughly what happens. Don't talk someone through the plot in a pitch. Mm. Do not, like, you don't need to do that. Give us an idea of what you're exploring, mm. the sort of genre, the space, the feeling, the atmosphere of it. And then if we love it and we love your work, we'll then follow up for the materials. You do not need to give like a, so here we start here and go all the way through because people will just, it just feels a bit impersonal actually. Yeah. It's hard to piece together a plot on the fly in your head as well and understand exactly what someone means. So you've yeah. done it before earlier on where like you just get the vacant stare. <laughs> You're like, cool, that's not how to do it. And do you do you two find it different? Because in terms of TV, I think it is more that, that the pitching thing does happen more and certainly in music, video and commercials, you're, you're like pitching to a brief. So it is slightly mm. different. How how do you find it when you're asked about ideas and meetings and stuff? What's your approach? Now I try to just give a taste of it, literally like this is the emotional journey, this is the genre. And then I just have faith that they're going to ask me questions about it. And then from that, I can kind of like fill in the gaps, which my head is telling me to scream at them. Right. Um, yeah, like I, I kind of try to create worlds as well. So I think that's where it gets a bit tricky for me. So like I sometimes I'll just give them the setup of the world as the top line and then I'll just say, and this is the character we're following, this is the journey they go on and then just let people ask questions. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of the same same is 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 just very much that. Uh, I think I've done it before. Probably with you, Amy, where I've just t- talk shit <laughs> <laughs> and, and and not and not and not spoke about sort of like the like the type of things that you're interested in and the project and why you're interested in it from a personal point of view as well, rather than but you, trying to talk You did exactly plot. that, Eyes, but I, that's why I remember your our meeting so well. You didn't, you had an idea, and I think you admitted that it wasn't fully formed, but, and I won't go into what the idea was, but I remember you being like, I'm really interested in this. It was something quite personal. Yeah. And you're like, I'm really interested in how this personal thing speaks to my community, I th- you know? And I was like, well, that's interesting, because I already, I already feel the specifics of that. Mm. And I already felt that it was sort of something we hadn't really seen before from a really personal perspective. And mm. you didn't even pitch me like a beginning, a middle and an end, but you're like, there's a character and there's something about what this says that I'm interested in. And then as you say, Marcus, like that makes me lean in and ask questions. And hopefully the question and answer session and the conversation is where the kind of the idea gets fleshed out without you mm. needing to... um yeah, give a give a spiel, I suppose. Amy, are any of your projects that you've because obviously you've been there what two three years now at Film Four, uh, almost two. Yeah, not not so like almost two, two years, years. Two years. So so have, yeah. are any of your projects getting to that third year stage? I, I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Well, lots of ones that um because as I said, our slates huge. So I came on to a lot of projects in various forms that you, I obviously didn't bring onto the slate. So like. I'm now in post-production on some and first draft on others as that process. But then a couple that I brought onto the slate are um, 
nearing the end of their development process, which is exciting, but also it's tough because then we get to the point of like, is this a production conversation now? We'll share it with the wider team. That can be brutal sometimes because fresh eyes is tough, but they see they see things that they you know you've missed or that you thought were sort of translating to readers and it's not. That can be tricky. And then it's about like the partners and sometimes you just can't build the project, even though film four are involved, you still can't find the right partners to make the finance work. That's the kind of brutal reality of the industry. But I'm hopeful. I'm very hopeful that a couple of those will be going into production soon. Yeah, I, I mean, I won't, I won't give you any names, but I know that one of them, and it's really cool. It's a really cool idea. Secret, secret. Yes. <laughs> what? Um, uh, another listener question we've got is, what are you not, and not in capital letters, not looking for? Indians, <laughs> you can never, this is a politician's answer, but you can never say you're not looking for something, because what happens if you, someone comes with like a really innovative spin on a film that like just blows you away? This is an industry comment, but it's very hard to to sort of um, put together drama at the minute, I think. Mm. Obviously, there are exceptions, like, and there should always be exceptions. You know, After Sun did fantastically well, and we have a really exciting new debut coming out from Molly Banner Walker called How to Have Sex, which I'm is just, like, will blow you away, I think. It's a fantastic mm. debut. And, that, you know, that was drama. But I do think it's tricky, sort of out and out drama, just people aren't going to the cinema as much for that. So that can feel a little difficult, though I would never say don't talk to us about drama if it's very personal or specific or that's the work or the field you've been in. You know, don't worry. I don't think film for looking for war films necessarily. I don't think I, we, we don't want to do World War Two. Unless it's Jonathan Glazer taking a really fresh perspective on somebody in his new film, The Zone of Interest, like, please Google mm. that. That's It's not a war film, but it's sort of set yeah. against set the backdrop of war. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So War adjacent. War adjacent. Yeah. War adjacent films are fine. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know what? I'm not going to say we're not looking for anything because that's never the case. If a filmmaker mm. comes with um, insight into something that feels exciting and a, a way to tell a story or a character that we sort of feels fresh then we can be on board so i'm not we're not not looking for anything but we are actively looking for more genre stuff and things that perhaps could connect to a younger audience and by younger i sort of mean 16 to 35 you know it's not it's not young adult it's things that feels zeitgeisty and that kind of commenting on the world now and how it is to be someone who everything from finishing school to having us get a mortgage. Like, what, what is the world like for us? It's mad. We're experiencing climate crisis, economic crisis. Like, what are the ways that you want to talk about these things? Mm. That's what we want to hear about, I suppose, in whatever lens that might, that might come through. Another question we've got here. Thank you for that one. How do you see the current landscape for indie filmmaking given the exhausted business model? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure what the exhausted business model means is. I don't know what's exhausted about it. Maybe it's about the current economic climate. Yeah, it's a good question and a tricky one. I mean, obviously, like, there's a there's a big SAG strike on, which is affecting... Like, we've had to stand down a couple of projects because of the strike. It has affected us. In some ways, I, I was speaking to a couple of short filmmakers, actually, and they were really buzzing because... I, I think generally everyone is obviously in support of the strike, just to say I think people should be paid what they're worth. In terms of from a UK perspective... Like, should we not be jumping on it? Like, the, it, let's look some inward investment to the UK industry. We should not be reliant on the US 
I think often we lose talent to the US, we lose storytellers, actors, crew yeah. to the US. And it's actually, I wish it was a wake up call for our government to like look more into it, like let's support the UK industry and actually how can we use this as an opportunity? And I was talking to some new, uh, some short filmmakers who were like, well, we're just going to reach out to this A-list British star because actually they can work on short films and they're not working at the minute. They're not working in America at the minute and that project stood down. So like, actually, can you use it as a bit of an opportunity to be a bit bold about who you reach out to in terms of actors and crew who have come off these big projects because of the strike? Like, maybe, maybe use that as an opportunity, I think. In terms of the indie film sector, it's hard. It's, it's, it's a tricky one. You know, we're still... I think all the key cornerstone finance is still in place and still trying to support the industry as best we can. I think other models need to be found too, though. And I think that's a conversation that is going to be ongoing for the next five or 10 years. But it's like if Film 4, BFI and BBC say no, then you feel stuck, mm. right? Like where where do you mm. go? And we need to find other ways for people to finance films beyond us. And we would we would support that and... If we can find more partners and more players in the industry, we can do more as well. Mm. Um, and actually, that goes right down to the cinema side of things. I had a brilliant conversation with a producer yesterday about sort of cinema culture, and like we need the we need you all to 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 make this noise with your feet and be going to independent films and making them make sense theatrically, because that comes right back to financiers and. You know, we we have to respond to that. So you, it's like voting with your feet, isn't it? Or trying to make noise with your feet. Mm. Be in the cinemas and support these projects so that reciprocally we can support more of the projects getting into cinemas, I guess. Yeah. I was going to ask about theatrical release, actually. Just if you guys have a philosophy on, on that. Do you prioritize theatrical releases still or, or straight to streaming? I'm intrigued to get your perspective on that. Yeah, def- definitely. You know, I think we, we support cinema the the medium of cinema and the culture of cinema sort of absolutely and would always develop a project really with the aim of a theatrical release now that ambition and that intention changes depending on the market or if a streamer swoops in and wants to you know wants to give the film a huge budget who are we to stand in the way of that and say actually if you do it this way you know you're not going to be able to have that spaceship you wanted but you could do it on a low-fi way i think we like we support films getting made in the first instance but absolutely with the intention of being in cinemas i think it's so important i think we could talk Mm. we could go on a tangent about the importance of cinema but we have worked with streamers we do work with I think we have projects with all the big streamers also, and that's a completely valid medium, both in terms of financing and, and viewing. Of course, we all watch stuff on streaming platforms, but um, still believe in the great art of cinema. Last question that we've got is, do you have any advice for people who may not have representation, but have a strong track record at festivals who may be looking to get something developed with you or somewhere similar? I, I don't want to comment too much on the sort of trying to get representation question just because I have some thoughts about that, but I'm not an agent. We work with agents, of course, but I don't know their process necessarily. I mean, if you've had something that has played really well at festivals, then you, you do have leverage to reach out to agents, absolutely, and and be um, targeted about that. Like, look at filmmakers you love. Look at people who are doing similar work to you or people you admire and look at who their agent is and be quite targeted about that. You can submit to our Film Force Submissions inbox, which we'll get looked at at some point. It's not a quick process. None of it is really, but you can submit to that. 
And then actually we do try and be like, certainly in autumn, we'll all be around at about festivals. So if you see us or see our name somewhere, feel free to drop us a note. Have a couple of feature ideas. Don't just do a general. I've done a couple of generals where people are like, there's been, they didn't want anything. They sort of didn't have anything to say. They just wanted to have a meeting. I was like, you know what? Like got loads to do. And that was really pointless <laughs> for both of us. Like why? <laughs> You know, at least come and say, actually, I've got a few a few debut ideas that I'm toying around with. Like, this one feels quite interesting. And then maybe we can have a, a target discussion. If you just want to chat, like, wait, 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 wait till you have sort of something to say and a bit of momentum or something you're really gearing up to do that I can potentially either look at, be directive about, put you in touch with someone. Like, I'm really happy to help wherever possible. But if it's just for chat, as much as I love to chat, as you can tell, I've got time. I've got time for that. <laughs> what are the do's and don'ts for generals? Just out of curiosity, just, I mean, hopefully this conversation will help alleviate some of those conversations which you've just referenced. But yeah, what, what should people prepare for a conversation? What can they expect? I think, A, don't be nervous. Don't feel like you need to come and pitch hard, as you said. It, it really is tricky when someone's like, so I've got this idea and then they'll spend 10 minutes just going beat by beat. Like that's not helpful for us or for you. I think it's come with a good couple of lines about a couple of projects you're working with, the sort of films you're interested in, the sort of filmmakers you're interested in, your inspiration, and kind of a bit about what you've been up to recently. Like, oh, I actually just did this music video that was really interesting because I tried to play Dolly for the first time. Or, you know, like some, some kind of things that you can talk about that just show how you're involved and how you're progressing, I guess, is really helpful or a bit about what you're up to. But honestly, like, they're just human conversations. It's just like going for a coffee and wanting to understand more about you as a storyteller. Like, don't feel pressured to over-prepare because you should have been doing the work anyway. You've probably been sat with those scripts for months and, you know, been researching and things. So it's all in you and just try and be as natural and as authentically yourself as possible because that's what's exciting. It's a great vantage point you've got, Amy, isn't it? Just being able to see so many different talent and listen to their perspectives on the world and how they interpret the world through their art is pretty sick. It is such a privilege. I like, And I, I, it was so funny. I said that to my friend the other day because often my friends would be like, you know, friends I've known for 20 years, like, so what do you do? Like, what is it you actually do? And I'm like, okay. And I was saying that, I was like, you know, someone might pitch an idea or we might be in development about a Someone who's researching a scientist from the 60s who developed this, you know, this incredible tool or an athlete or a, a part of the world that I've just never heard about. Because they're researching it and bringing all that into their script, by proxy, we then get to understand this whole thing about a part of the world that I just didn't know. What a joy that is. I don't know how I managed to get to this position, to be honest. I feel incredibly, incredibly lucky to work with creatives and like, Part of my job is just helping bring that to fruition, I guess. But yeah, it's it's a very interesting job. Yes, I think that we've we've definitely uh, done done good there. I feel more enriched about the whole development process. Do you actually? Yes, You're not, and it's been. Is de- there anything else I can de- do? No, that's it's been helpful? demystified. Hundred percent. It's yeah. we're coming at it from. We always learn. Stuff. Yeah, we're coming at it from two filmmakers' point of view. So that's the angle we're coming from, and that's what we wanted. So thank you very much. Okay. Because uh, no I've been to talks where you've been on a panel, and it's not as in depth as this. Yeah, well, yeah, because you have like 10 minutes and there's 10 of you trying to say, yeah, you're yeah, trying to yeah, say yeah, something, exactly. aren't you? Exactly. And like you get people come to those meetings unprepared or saying the wrong things because no one tells you how to do a general. No yeah. one mm. until you have one. And then you're like. <laughs> 
And that's it. I think fucked up. you've come with your folder of, you know, folder, God, it's very uh, practical, isn't it? But, you know, you your come iPad. With, yeah, exactly. And you you think you need to give them the idea because you're like, you're going to buy this idea. And actually, we're, we're buying into like talent. We're buying into you as a mm. person, as a filmmaker, as a human. Like it's it's sort of much more um, primal than that, yeah, I suppose, yeah. actually. It's yeah. just about human connection. Yeah, I think the best generals I've had is when I've told them about my upbringing and my parents. Yeah. <laughs> you can feel people like connect and find it really compelling. But when you start trying to sell them shit, they just eyes glaze over. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, no one likes to be seconded. sold to, do they, uh, from any no. angle? Um, because you just, it's its not a nice process, actually. So, yeah, I love it. I love when people are like, oh, this mad thing happened to me on the bus. And you're like, that's how you kick <laughs> off a conversation. Or you just want to feel their personality, I think. And yeah. Um, yeah, that's the way to do it. We're going to come on to our next bit now, which is Nugget of the Week. And Marco, can you do the spiel for this bit? Because I can never get it right. <laughs> the spiel. <laughs> we need to write a standardised version. But do. basically what happens... But what, we literally do it on the fly every week. But but what happens is me and Oz, we, we consume so much media and content each week, which is a way of like enriching ourselves and learning and keeping that, that wheel turning, dropping bars. And we like to throw out the question to you. What about what has inspired you this week? Great question. Can I have two little ones? Am yes. I allowed to have two nuggets? Is that okay? Why not? Everyone breaks the rules. <laughs> yeah, everyone, no, one, no one can keep it in, yeah. can they? Well, my first one is, and you know what? This is very earnest from me, and I'm not normally as sentimental, but I, I subscribed to this newsletter, and it was it was actually talking about um, great quotes from writers, more novelists, actually, but it was a quote from Annie Dillard, I think, and it was, how you spend your days, of course, are how you spend your life. And I cannot tell you how much that slowed me. Like all this week I've been thinking about it. Like, oh, it's not the big, it's not the big things. It's not the career change or buying the house or the the big party or the big event. Like it's me walking my dog or me watching a film with my friend who I love. Or all the small things are like who you are. And cumulatively, mm. you build a life. And as I was sat like scrolling on my phone, I was like, oh my God, I'm wasting, I'm wasting my day. But <laughs> it just really, <laughs> it really stuck with me that like, it is the small things that build up to who you are as a person. And that's why I think to bring it back to sort of generals, it's like understanding all the things that make you a person, not that one big showy performative thing. It's like mm. a very day-to-day humanist that connected with me and um, that was a quote that really I keep thinking about it every day to be honest. So maybe maybe you'll take that into your week as well. Great. Yeah. I mean I don't need any more help to be existential. But no. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I did send me into a bit of an existential crisis to be honest. That and the end two minutes of Oppenheimer, I'd be like, what am I? Like, oh my goodness, <laughs> what is what is happening? Um, and then the other is I really love the art uh, musician Sharon Von Etten, and she has done the. Um, the final song on Past Lives, which is that Celine song film that's coming out in September. And like, I already feel obsessed with it. I haven't seen it yet, but I just know that it's going to completely destroy me. And I only just realized that Sharon did this song for the the closing credits. So it's called Quiet Eyes, and I would encourage you to all listen to it. And then hopefully we can enjoy the film together when it comes to the UK cinema in September. Love that. I can't wait to see Past Lives, by the way. I think me too. Be, yeah, it looks great. 
Mine is a YouTube video, actually. I've taken your vibe here. It's, it's a Guy Ritchie video, and he basically talks about some kind of, like, life lessons and taking possession of your life and kind of just, like... It's quite inspirational, and I love stuff like that. So we'll put that in the show notes and watch that. It's Guy Ritchie. It's loads of snippets of him talking because he suffers from quite severe dyslexia, and he just talks about how he overcame it and, and even talks about his failures as well. So, Guy Ritchie. Hmm. Great. Um, and mine is a, a Netflix documentary called The Deepest Breath. My friends were talking about it. I went to a wedding at the weekend and my friends were talking about it. And then it popped up the other day and I was like, oh, I'm just going to watch this. And then like, it's about free diving. So where people, they take one breath and then they have to reach the deepest point they can, collect a tag and then come all the way back up whilst maintaining consciousness at the top, else it doesn't count. And it's about like, yeah, it follows like a story of, of, of like a couple of, of free divers. And it's mad, like blackouts are so common, like, cause they, they get to like a hundred meters plus, like down in the depths and come all the way back up. So as they're coming halfway up to the top, it's like a mental struggle where they're just trying not to die. And there's safety divers there. It's so, it's so intense. And it just opens a long take of someone diving from beginning to end. It's just, so you're just in from the beginning. It's super tense and it's a really well told documentary. I think it, it's A24 involved in it as well. So yeah, if you need something like quite easy to watch, quite easy slash intense to watch, uh, highly recommend that. Good bit of storytelling. Easy only that I know I will never be in that situation, yes. which is good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> From afar. Yeah. yeah. It's good shit. Brilliant. Um, well, yeah, thank you so much thank you. Um, for, for coming on. Honestly, it's been super, super helpful. I'm sure it's going to help a lot of people as well. You just don't get access to this sort of stuff and, and these sorts of conversations. You were on our list to get in from November. When we first made our list last November, you were, like, you were on our list. We're like, let's get some episodes done and then let's reach out to Amy. Well, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And I love listening to it. So I won't probably will listen to this because I hate my own voice. <laughs> Everyone but, uh, says that, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and then they do. They're like, "Oh, listen to it, it wasn't that bad?" Yeah. <laughs> no, that was really fun. Thank you so much for having me. And where can people find you on socials, Amy? I have my Twitter. Probably is the best place to go, which is I think it's just a. Oh, it's not Twitter anymore. Sorry, it's X. Yeah. X. Yeah. X. Yeah. Elon's going to send a hitman to your house now. Yeah, uh, it's Amy Rose at Amy Rosanna O'Hara. All one word. Well, I do. I do have to go and do other work now, unfortunately. But um. Thanks so much, and like hopefully chat to you both again soon. Thank you so much, Amy. Brilliant. Thanks, Thank you. Bye. 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 So this concludes the episode. So thank you so much to Amy for coming on. And next week, I'm sure we'll be joined by another exciting guest, as always. So follow socials to find out who we'll be having on. And if anyone does happen to be listening, get your questions in at the director's take at outlook.com. And we want you to tell us what you want to know about directing or the film industry at large. And we'll do our best to tell you. We want to shape this as a resource for you. So do get your questions in and reach out to us on Instagram, which is the director's take podcast. And also on Twitter, which is at the director's take and leave a review for us because it really helps us on the platforms and like us and follow us on Twitter. Tell your friends, tell enemies, tell everybody. So I think that's it. So until next time, keep learning. Keep failing and keep the faith.